0: You know, I think as we continue moving through this series on Deuteronomy and remembering what it means that God was king over Israel and that he remains king today, it's it's a statement that I think we're tempted to kind of cringe at, the idea that we're servants and subservient to a king or a master or a ruler because we like so much to be free. And yet, I want to kind of invite you into this reminder that it's not bad news that God is king. And if you need to feel what that feels like, what I want you to do is just take just a moment and call to mind, not for long, but just for a moment, all your fears about your life right now, your anxieties, the things you worry about, the things that feel chaotic and out of control, uh, the things that when you see on the news just fill you with anxiety and and frustration. Take a deep breath and remember... God's still king. And that's the peace that comes from this kind of understanding. And as we've moved through Moses' final sermons in the book of Deuteronomy that he's giving to Israel, he's reminding them God's in control and you're not. And anyone else who claims that they are is in trouble. And they don't get it and they don't know. And he invites the people, instead of thinking that they're in control or someone else is, to acknowledge that God is king. And you do it by being close to God. And you stay close to God by remaining close to Him through both obedience and relationship. Moses then gives us the commandments that were given to him by God. And as we get into the commandments last week, we were reminded that the commandments tell us that God's reign is rooted in a story, a story of deliverance and salvation for Israel that came in the Exodus as God brought them out of Pharaoh's rule and into his good reign. And that story that's anchored in in the Exodus for Israel for us is anchored in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise that we are set free from sin and death and invited into the kingdom of God through his blood shed on the cross. And we're invited then to show our loyalty to God by giving our loyalty and our love and our gratitude upward to God and outward to others. That this is the way that we honor God and obey His commands. And today what we're going to be looking at is how Jesus began to reinterpret in His ministry these commandments that we've been studying in Deuteronomy. Because Jesus is going to give a teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that is a different level than anything that was offered in the Ten Commandments. We're going to look at how Jesus came to the idea and came to teach that, that name-calling or belittling someone with your thoughts or your words equals murder. Because that's quite a, an accusation, that's quite an idea that Jesus comes up with, that, that you could simply look on someone lustfully with your eyes, and you've already committed adultery and broken the commandment to not covet something that's not yours, simply by casting a wrong gaze upon them. That's quite a difficult teaching and not quite like what we read in Deuteronomy. So how does Jesus, who studies the law and knows the law, Deuteronomy is a book that Jesus read and was familiar with and quoted often. How does he come to interpret those texts in this new way? And then you think about what it means. Can can you imagine, just imagine for a minute that you're driving on your way uh, to church and you're running a few minutes late. And on your way to church, as you're running late, uh, you're in a hurry. But you're committed to not speeding because it just feels really wrong to get a speeding ticket on the way to church. And So you're not speeding, but you're really, you're, you're feeling rushed. You can all imagine this feeling, right? Except for the not speeding part. But you're not speeding because you're, you're obeying the law. You're staying close to God through obedience and relationship. This is the obedience part, the not speeding. And a cop pulls you over. And he walks up to your window, and you roll the window down, and he says, do you know why I pulled you over? I, said, I, I do not know, actually. I don't know. I know, I, I just look at my speedometer before you pulled me over. I was going too under the speed limit. I, I, I know that my lights are good. My tag is current. I have no idea why you pulled me over. And he says, well, yeah, you were going the speed limit, but I could tell by looking at you when you drove by me that you looked rushed and you looked like you were feeling in a hurry. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but I wasn't speeding. But you looked like you wanted to be speeding. I, I did, but I wasn't. Well, you have heard it said before that you shouldn't speed, but I tell you that whoever drives while in a hurry is guilty of speeding, even up to the punishment of losing your license and receiving a ticket. Wouldn't that, I mean, you would be outraged. This isn't right. Even though I wanted to be speeding, even though I was in a rush in a hurry, I was following the letter of the law. And yet Jesus says it's not just about the letter of the law, it's about the heart and the intent. And we glaze over these teachings because we've heard them from the times that we were children. But this is a very different standard than we get from law obedience, from the Deuteronomy teachings. And so how does Jesus get to this place? where he can say what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to read this text for you as you think about what it means that Jesus is giving this totally different level of teaching. It's not just illegal to speed, it's illegal to want to be in a hurry while driving. Jesus begins, begins, continues the sermon. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell what a teaching what an idea Jesus is, is giving this teaching that, that is just very foreign and very different to what we normally think of when we think about law obedience. And so the question is, how can Jesus reinterpret the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that God has given to His people Israel in this way? Where does He get the connections? And, and, and I want us to just for a moment assume that the answer is not, He's Jesus, He knows these things. But that Jesus had to study the word of God, study the books of the law, study the things at, at synagogue and at the temple, sitting at the feet of the teachers who were impressed with his knowledge as, even as a boy. That he's learning these things from the text and that he then takes them because the idea is not that Jesus is here to throw away the law. He says the law will not fall away. I'm here to fulfill it. Jesus' ministry is rooted in the law as he brings it forward and reinterprets it in these new ways. But, but what I want to look at today is how does Jesus manage to reinterpret the commandments in this way such that calling someone a name equals murder? That looking lustfully upon someone with your eyes equals having an affair with them. So Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 11 command that is often overlooked because we simply think of it as a thing we ought not to say. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 11, the command is this, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Well, that's easy enough, right? Um, Just don't take God's name and turn it into a cuss word. What's the next commandment, right? I think there's a lot more to this command than simply abstaining from using God's name as profanity. And I want to kind of enter into this commandment as a way of beginning to understand what Jesus is doing when he thinks about the kind of honor and glory and respect that belongs to God and how that might affect not just how we give our honor upward, but also how we give respect and treatment of others outward. Jesus, in his teaching, uh, understands uh, that not using the Lord's name in vain is more than just not saying the name of the Lord or God when you're angry or upset or frustrated. Uh, at my house right now, uh, Harper's got in the habit of using—I don't say—a uh, word that we wish we ought not. Say, we, we wish he wasn't saying. And it's not like one of the really, really bad ones, but it's one of those that when it comes out of the mouth of a five-year-old just feels like you're a bad parent. Um, And she's got the sweetest little voice, and when it says things that are in the yellow zone, they feel very red, and so we're trying to get rid of them. Um, And so I I told her the other day uh, that my mom, when she used to get really upset about something, would often say, pickle relish. Um, And Harper can't say, quite pronounce it just right. So we get a lot of pickle radish at my house right now. Pickle radish, um, which makes us all laugh. And Harper bringing laughter to people is her ultimate virtue. So we've managed to replace the yellow zone word with pickle radish. Um, But what God is trying to do is not get us to use his name in that way that it's being treated the same as pickle radish, God's trying to give him a totally different level of of treating even his name and everything about his person as if it is holy and sacred and worthy of honor. Do not treat God's name as something ordinary. Do not treat God's name as if it is not a big deal. Even the name of the Lord is sacred and holy and deserves, when it is spoken by your tongue, to be treated that way. When you go to your house, I imagine, if your house is like mine, uh, we have tiers of towels. Do you know where the nice towels are at your house? Uh, The towels that that are for putting out when guests come over. The towels that are more for display than even maybe for drying. And, And then you also have the towels that are for taking to the pool. And you don't take the towels that are for display when the guests come over to the pool. And you certainly don't use them to clean the shower. That's a different towel. And the problem is that sometimes the way we talk about God's name is taking what should be the fine towels and treating them like dish towels. That should not happen. We should be giving honor and glory and respect to God in such a way that we always give His name the place of prestige, the place of honor. It's the same thing with dishes. You know the dishes that you only bring out for the special occasions? You don't use those to feed the dog. Sometimes the way we speak of God and use his name is so ordinary that we take the most divine and powerful being and we use his name to clean the dishes and feed the dog. God is more worthy and deserving and requires more honor and respect than that. And so we don't use the the Lord's name in vain, but it's about much more than profanity. It's about assigning the right value to the name of the one who created all things, and through him all things are saved. That is a very different thing than just don't let God's name become pickle radish. It's more than that. How does that affect how we treat others? Go back just one verse to to verse 10. The end of the teaching about uh, not making idols... It talks about how God is a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But in verse verse 10, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is worthy of being celebrated and honored and not treated like mud. And he loves those who keep his commandments. He loves those who, who are His. God is in the business of loving people, and we as people ought to be in the business of honoring God. And so after this command, the command uh, on not using the Lord's name in vain, the commandments, as we talked about last week, shift from being about our relationship to God to then moving into Sabbath, which is about both our relationship with God and our relationship with others, and the rest of the commandments are about our relationships with others. And so on one occasion, in Mark chapter 12, a teacher of the law comes up to Jesus and he wants to catch him in a trap and catch him in a, a, a tough question that even a Messiah or a, a, a one claiming to be a Messiah might not be able to answer. And the teacher asked Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest law in all of the Old Testament and all of the Torah and everything that we received from Moses and, and it was given to us by God? What's the greatest commandment? Jesus gives two answers. The first one is this love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's a big teaching, that's one that they would have expected. That one comes right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's right on the heels of the Ten Commandments. It's right there in the teaching about the Lord your God is one. And you love Him with all your strength, mind, heart, and soul, that, that it's right there that they would have said, yeah, I saw that one coming. That's one of the top answers given when asked this question. And then Jesus says this. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, to find the commandment in the law that tells you to love your neighbor as yourself, you can't go to the big hits of Deuteronomy 5 and 6, the Ten Commandments and the teachings that follow. You have to go all the way to Leviticus 19, to a less quoted verse in the days of Jesus, a verse that is immediately before, a verse that gives you the instruction that you are not to mate animals of other species. He's really reaching into the cellar to find this teaching that he exalts to being the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is continuing to reinterpret the law in such a way as to say it's not just about loving God. It's not just about giving honor and glory to God. It's about giving love, glory, and honor to God's people, to the ones God makes. And it's not just about actions and not speeding. It's about not even being in a hurry while having your foot on the pedal. It's about the inner heart transformation level kind of stuff. And Jesus continues to reinterpret these commandments about loving people, loving God, in a way that nobody else had before. He's holding people to entirely new standards of not just outward behavior, but internal soul level transformation. Where did he get this? Where is Jesus coming from? And I'll tell you, here's where I think he's coming from when he starts holding these very well-known teachings about giving honor and glory and respect to God and pulling up these ideas that it should also be given to other people. If you come and start talking to me in such a way uh, where you are insulting me, because remember, we're supposed to honor God and treat His name as if it is greater than all other names. And you also remember that God loved those who keep His commands. Uh, that starts to sound a lot like a father worthy of respects, loved those who obey His commands. Jesus, Abba, Father. And, and, and for me as a father, if someone comes up to me and starts saying all kinds of awful things about me, going at my character, questioning my decisions, telling me I'm awful, uh, dragging my name through the mud, questioning my reputation. Uh, It's going to be unusual. I'm not going to like it, but I'm not likely to be the kind of person who at some point in your insulting of me decides it's time that I'm going to punch you. I'm I'm just not wired that way. I'm not the, uh, the, 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 I'm going to fight you because you said something that made me feel bad about myself kind of person. But if you come up and you start talking to my children that way, telling them that they're worthless, that they're fools, that they're trash, suddenly something in me is going to snap. And I might just become the kind of person who's ready to move you physically from this space and to correct with my actions your bad words. Because you do not talk to my children that way. And you can imagine a potter who's sitting there at the wheel. Pat, I'll never forget the VBS where you brought the pottery wheel out and, and just watching Pat sculpt this, this clay. And it was incredible to watch it as the wheel would spin and he'd, he'd, the water in his hands and the motion, the connection between the potter and, and the clay, and, and as it spins, it begins to form into something else in the most gentle movements. The potter is able to craft a masterpiece. You imagine that as the potter is there pouring his heart and soul and creativity and energy into the clay, someone comes up and says, ah, that clay, is, it's just too soft. It's awful. Someone else comes over here and goes, it's too soft. That clay's way too firm. It's too hard. The potter's not, you haven't put enough water on it. It's too firm. And someone else says, I, I don't like the colors you're putting on your, your pottery. It's too yellow. And the other one goes, yellow? It's obviously far too green. Someone says, it's too small. It's too large. But they can both agree, I hate what you've made. I don't like it. It doesn't look like I want it. It doesn't look like I would make it if I were the potter. It's not like me. You can imagine the potter looking at his clay. Jeremiah describes God as the potter who is shaping our lives. The potter looks at the clay and says, It may not look like you, but I created it to look like me. I poured myself into this masterpiece to form it in my image after my mind and my heart with my hands so that it might reflect the beauty that I wanted it to have. I'm not worried about it looking like you. I'm making this vessel of clay to be in the image that I intend for, it, in my image, bearing my name as the master potter. And the, the master potter, when they're done, moves the dish over and places their mark upon it. So that you might know that it is not garbage pottery or cheap pottery or mass-produced pottery, but it bears the mark of the master on it. And you better not take the name of the Lord in vain. Which means you can't go after the pottery that bears his mark. And you can't go after the children who are in his image and bear his name. My kids have my name. You don't go after my kids. You don't go after the master's pottery because it bears his mark. You cannot insult and tear down the pottery while giving honor and praise to the potter. You cannot tear down the masterpiece. If you're going to tear down the masterpiece, you might as well throw the potter's name in the mud with it. You cannot insult the children And praise the Father. You can't do that. Jesus says, if you call somebody raka and a fool, you've committed murder. And you start to see how he's getting there. He says, listen, if you try and take possession of something with your eyes or someone with your eyes that doesn't belong to you, then you've already committed adultery. You've already got problems with coveting. You've crossed lines that ought not to be crossed because you don't treat my pottery and my children that way and then give honor and glory to me. You might as well drag my name into the mud and you give honor and glory to the name of God, which changes how we then have to treat the masterpiece and the children. Jesus teaches that you love the Lord your God, but the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. If you respect God, you respect those who bear his image. You respect God's children. I don't want to risk being too subtle here. So let me speak plainly. Our world is filled with people who are white, black, blue, Democrat, third party, Republican, political activist, people who believe in other religions, atheists, agnostics, foreigners, people who don't think like you, people who don't speak like you, people who are born in other places than you. This list could obviously be longer. But here's my question. In the list of groups of people that I just named, did you hear any description of people who God did not create in his image? Did you hear a description of any group of people that Jesus did not die on the cross for? Did you hear any group of people in that list that was not created in God's image because He loves them and they are His masterpiece and they are His children? When you go after those vessels, those jars of clay with anger and insults, you go after the potter. You cannot treat the masterpiece like it's garbage, and give honor and glory to the name of the one who crafted it. I know 100%, I 100% know that there are people who you disagree with that Jesus died on the cross for And I don't know that I can say that I'm 100% sure for this because I'm not judge and jury, only God is, and and God has appointed Jesus to be the one who judges. But I'm nearly 100% sure that there are people that will spend eternity with Jesus Christ who you really don't get along with right now. Because the cross is sufficient to save even criminals on the cross and even people that you don't get along with on the internet. The cross is sufficient. And if you're going to be spending eternity with those people, whoever you're those people are, then why don't you start practicing getting along with them now? Because it'll make it a little bit less embarrassing then. I hope that by the providence of God that there are people right now, I'm talking to you about the people that you don't like and you can't get along with and you can't stand, and encouraging you to treat them like they're the children and masterpieces of God. I hope that by God's providence that there are people right now who can't stand me somewhere, and maybe even some people that can't stand you somewhere that have their preacher preaching to them this same message today that they need to start figuring out how to get along with you, and they might need the grace of God to do it because we might need the grace of God to learn how to love them. But if we're going to be with them for eternity, let's start figuring out what that looks like today. And let's make this world start to look a little bit more like heaven by having people that otherwise couldn't stand each other start to love each other with the love of God. Because the love of God does this. The love of God in Romans 5.8 demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I thank God that he didn't wait to send Jesus to die for us till we agreed with everything he cared about because we'd still be waiting for the Savior to come. And if we're going to, as we've talked about before in this series, receive from God what we will then offer back to Him upward and outward, if we receive from God a love that was given to us while we were still unlovable, then the call for us as His people is to now love forward by loving God because He first loved us and loving others while they still don't agree with us. That's the way God loves and it's the way He calls for His people to love. We don't wait for other people to look like me, think like me, talk like me, vote like me. I go to them where they are right now and love them the way God loved me while I was still failing to agree with Him. He sent His Son to die for me on the cross. God loved us when we were unlovable, and the commandments call us to return our gratitude and loyalty by sharing it upward to God and outward to others even the most extreme others you can find so let's receive god's love that he gave to us when we were hard to love by extending it to others who we find hard to love if you've never received that love if you're resisting it or if you've never been willing to willing to give it away after you've been given it by god why don't you respond to the gospel this morning? Why don't you accept that we've got a good king who's created a great kingdom, that if we can just figure out how to live and love this way, we'll draw the unbelieving world to look at him and say, boy, I don't know if I believe, but I believe that you sure do, and it has changed you, and it's changing the world. You are good people who are clearly believe in a good God. If you want to be a part of that kingdom, and if you need to respond to that message, uh, come forward this morning as we stand and worship together.
1: I care not today what the morrow may bring, if shadow or sunshine or rain, the Lord in Jesus above, above. trusting, Trusting, confiding in his great love, love. yes, in his great love. From all arms safe, from all arms safe, in his sheltering arm, his sheltering arm, I'm living by faith, I'm living by faith faith and feeling. may blow and the storm clouds arise obscuring the brightness of light. i'm never alarmed at the overcast skies the master looks on at the strife living by faith yes living, living by faith in jesus above. in jesus above Faith and feel no, feel no alarm. I know that he safely will carry me through, no matter what evils be tied. Why should I then care, though the tempest may blow, if Jesus walks close to my side? In this great love, from all harm's sake, from all harm's sake, baby's sheltering arm, his sheltering arm. I'm living my faith, I'm living my faith, and feel no, feel no alarm. Two things. You guys noticed that the air conditioning stopped just as he got to the main point. and another thing we never we never call each other and ask each other which shirt are you wearing or no coordination and yet i'm talking about vessels and he's talking about vessels yeah. having read the uh <clears throat>